Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to this week's Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from Ireland and across the world. Thank you for downloading from our website at techcentral.ie using your favourite podcast app on your smartphone or indeed listening on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. This is our show for the weekend Friday the 29th of May and as it's a bank holiday weekend we have a special double edition of the show for you right here, right now. Uh, however, if you listen to us on RT Radio 1 Extra on DAB Digital Radio, you can get the full extra edition of the show on our website at www.techcentral.ie. So what is going on that we have so much for you this weekend? Well, during the week, Niall visited the Irish Technology Leaders Group Silicon Valley Global Tech Summit, which was held at Helix in DCU. The event played host to a range of great speakers from multinationals down to startups, and we collared some of the very, very best to speak to us at length about what they do and where they see technology going. First up, Niall spoke to Margaret Burgraff from Intel. Now, she's a Cork woman and Margaret has worked in Apple and HP and now in Intel, where she's Vice President of Intel Software and Services Division, Software and Services Group. She was back in Dublin to talk a little bit about the Internet of Things, Big Data, and how both of those would change the way we use and think about technology. I'm here at the ITLG Silicon Valley Global Tech Summit in Fingal today, and uh, I'll be speaking to a couple of people about trends in cloud and big data and uh, the various obstacles that are getting in the way of developing uh, in both areas. Uh, And I'm being met first thing in the morning by Margaret Burgraff, who is the Vice President of the Cloud Computing Group at Intel. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning. How are you today? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, sort of, uh, just to get the ball rolling, um, today you will be speaking on a panel about embracing cloud and big data to deliver value to uh, to companies. Uh, one of the things about cloud computing at the moment is that people associate it with very basic services like, say, Dropbox or even your regular email, uh, Gmail, what have you. Um, but it's it's... In as much as it's amorphous as a, as a cloud itself, how is the concept of cloud changing? So the context is changing because we're looking at a world in 2020 where there's going to be 50 billion devices in the world generating 44 zegabytes of data. Now, a zegabyte of data is a kilobyte to the power of 10, right? In the world that we have today, we're measuring in petabytes. That's kilobytes to the power of five. Now, to date, all of the data has all been semi-structured, structured, or not structured at all. And we haven't really been able to um, get good information, meaningful information out of the data. So with 50 billion devices in the world, with all of this data going up to the cloud, we're going to have to put lots of new infrastructures in place and deep data analytic um, infrastructure in place in order to make meaningful data to improve our lives in the future because it's big big problems that the world is facing in the future Uh, by 2030 40 percent so in california right now we have a big problem with water right predictions if we keep going the way we are by 2030 there'll be a 40 percent gap between supply and demand and water that's a huge issue we resolve that through learning, through big data, with all of the geos in the world, what things work and what things do not work. Another problem that we're going to have in the next, you know, um, 50 years' time, we're going to have uh, 70%, uh, actually we'll have probably about a 10 billion population, we'll have a 70% need to produce more food. That 50 years between now and then will mean we'll need as much food production which has been created throughout the entire history of time. Huge problems that need to be resolved. Now, the big thing with big data that I'm personally excited about is the work um, with um, genome sequencing. So back in 2001, to sequence some genomes, it took or it cost $100 million. 
Intel has done a lot of work with encumbrance systems in order to accelerate the amount of time in order to get some sequencing. We've had success rates when working with Illumina to bring it down from like up to seven days to within you know a day. With Cleveland Hospital, we've gotten it from 20 hours to three hours. Now, if you are a patient with cancer, right, a quick diagnosis and a quick personalized treatment is going to be the world of the future. Now, today, according to um, the um, New England Journal of Medicine, you have a 50% or a coin's flip chance of getting a correct diagnosis with medicine today when you go into your general doctor because it is based on luck, trial and error, the doctor's intuition and the doctor's experience more than real data. In the world of the future, it's going to be very much genome sequencing will be within a few hours and, you know, there's what, between 20,000 and 25,000 genes in any human body. To have all of that looked through and to really know directly where the source of cancer is, I really believe is the next point to getting to the root cause of cancer and eradicating cancer longer term. Now, cancer is a big deal, right? Because 50% of men are going to encounter it in their lifetime. A third of all women are going to encounter it in their, their lifetimes. For me personally, my father died of cancer. So I'm really excited working with a company that are working with many cancer institutes around the world in order to put our hardware and work with um, MIT and Harvard on their um, genomic analytical kit in order to accelerate um, getting more data, meaningful data, and making the world a better place. And when you say sort of getting more data and getting meaningful data, of course this relies upon having a very reliable backbone via in-servers or very reliable technology in terms of maybe sensors and very reliable people in terms of gathering data and making sure that it's certified and up to standard. Do you see these as being very pressing challenges towards big data at the moment? Well, they are, right, because right now we have about 90 different standardization bodies in, you know, the world of IoT. So I'm going to see, or we're all going to see over the next couple of years, a lot of consolidation. Now, in the industrial space, um, OIC, or sorry, IIC has become the standard, or it seems as though that's the leading standard in the consumer space. OIC seems to be the leading standard, but we really need... No one company can resolve the challenges of the future together or fulfill the promise of big data and big cloud. So we're going to need a lot of collaboration between a lot of the um, companies. We're going to need a lot of help with government and government policies so that there is data privacy and there is going to be... um, the personal information or the information that is very critical that can identify a human is going to be abstracted so that we're working at the actual thing so we can correlate between, you know, all different hospitals surrounding the world or all different, you know, manufacturers. And, you know, we've shown a lot of success in working with one of our with some of our partners when it comes to cost and efficiency. So with back to genome sequencing, right, when you get it from seven days to four hours in order to get sequencing, clearly that's a lot cheaper, right? Um, with our work with aluminum, um, it's taken it from a hundred thousand and um, or sorry, a hundred million dollars in two thousand and one to now less than a thousand dollars. I see a world in maybe 2021, 20, 22, where that'll be regular parts of your well checks, which will be a wonderful, wonderful thing that you just go in and a couple of hours later you get a report spitting out telling you that you are healthy rather than just looking at your face and taking your temperature and taking your blood pressure and assuming you're going to be fine. Uh, and just sort of uh, again on that idea of standards do you think sort of the skills that are available now in the workplace um, are really up to um, sort of the results that you want to get who should be looking towards a career in big data are you looking for mathematicians are you looking for modelers Uh, who should be interested in this field 
I think that everybody ought to be interested in this field. I mean, we've worked with some um, uh, trucking companies and have seen far more efficiencies in the routes that they've taken. And even when you consider, say, smart city in the Internet of Things, when you'll be able to get from your car what is the quickest route, where are the car spaces or the parking spaces, it just will save us time and make a far more convenient world for us. Um, it does mean, though, that we all have to work together as an industry, or as a, I guess, a species, right? Um, I've seen that in, um, in Shanghai, so for the past 20 years, they've been collecting a lot of data. And I think that there's over 16 million um, recorded patients, um, patient documentations a day in Shanghai. That leads to uh, 24 billion over the course of a year, or sorry, 4 billion over the course of the year. That's a lot of data. So far, what they've done with that data, they've been able to cluster the data into what times of the year, what times of the week, there's going to be more patients, right? Directly after a holiday, there's more patients coming in. So they've been able to adjust their staffing patterns. So, you know, it's up to your imagination to limit what the use use utilizations of these things are but I do think that in its cost and efficiency are the most obvious ones but after that correlating the data from a global center getting our education standards more globalized by being able to just really get meaningful information I mean it's been just the promise throughout my entire history of my career and now due to just Moore's law getting into a space where computing can be pretty much in anything, right? I mean, we have the 70s when we had the mainframes, we had the mini frames in the 80s, we had the uh, PCs in the 90s, we had the laptops in the 2000s, we got down to the smaller um, phones and mobile devices in 2010 and now 2020, I mean, even Brian Krasanich just uh, released the Quark chip the chip that can fit into a button, right? In 2020, compute can be ubiquitous. It can be everywhere. And it's limited to our imagination, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I see a world where there will be chips and pills, um, chips and pills that will be able to get um, uh, on the spot blood composition analysis. So your doctor can get data right into his center on that day, letting you know that you're low on zinc or whatever it might be. Today, we all just kind of blindly take our multivitamins and we don't really know how our health is other than we feel good. Hmm. Uh, one, one point that you mentioned there in passing was the issue of privacy. Yes. Um, and when it comes to regulation at the moment, we still have the safe harbour agreement between um, the US and the EU, which basically assumes that the US, that US-based companies are playing by the same rules. Uh, we now know that they're really not. Uh, how does Intel as a company approach sort of both sides of the Atlantic and sort of assure one that Intel is on the cutting edge of research, but on the other side, uh, assure the EU that, look, we are actually adhering to best practice in preserving people's anonymity. Well, first of all, I mean, Intel's role is creating the infrastructure underneath this, right? So creating the technology underneath it. But Intel is a highly collaborative um, company, and Intel <clears throat> realizes that we need different partners from all over the um, market space. And, you know, Intel is not going to be the one that forces all of these things, but it's definitely out there in the front speaking to the different policymakers. And I think that it's not as though it's a difficult conversation. I think everybody who is involved in big data and everybody who is looking at 2020 and knows that there is going to be 44 zettabytes of data, there's value in that. And hospital systems today, for example, right? They record the number of patients that come in on any given day, the number who go out, and the number who go out in a box, essentially, right? There's not a whole lot you can do with that, right? Let's start looking at what they came in with, what their symptoms were, and what medications helped. And with enough data correlated through the amount of time, we'll be able to tell 
this man with type A blood who's this age group will respond better to this type of treatment. And in some of the research that we've done, um, there was a particular strain of leukemia that was always considered just one strain. And we found out that there's two different strains and one is far more progressive than the other. But to date, due to the lack of data, they had been treated the same. I look forward to a day where it's personalized. And to me, this particular area is something that I'm, I speak a lot about because my father died of cancer. My father spent two years going into a hospital with a bad back or to his doctor, only to be told, maybe you're overweight, maybe you should do more exercise until he got diagnosed. Now, if he'd gotten diagnosed two years earlier, he may still be on this planet today. And it's pervasive and it impacts all of us throughout our lives. So <clears throat> it's an important topic. It's important not to crack. And uh, just sort of to, to bring the conversation around to yourself, you've had quite a, an interesting career path to date, beginning in, beginning in Cork with a, a bachelor's in um, uh, computer science mm-hmm. uh, at UCC. So uh, how exactly does somebody get from... Cork all the way out to Silicon Valley, just through a, a linear progression through a, a fairly, I don't want to say normal, but a career that makes sense. So you, you haven't bounced around from one startup to the next. Well, you know, I mean, some people say I'm kind of like uh, Napoleon's um, lucky general, you know, you'd rather have one lucky general than an army of clever ones. Now, there is a little bit of that, but there's also, I have been very strategic about my career. Um, I realized when I had started in Apple and Cork that when I was looking at what I wanted to do next, the more senior management positions were in Cupertino. There was also, back at that time, between 94 and 98, Apple didn't have a huge market share and Apple didn't have a whole lot of money at that time. But Steve Jobs came back to the company and I was working on the original iMac and for whatever reason there was something about that program that just captured our hearts and our minds and our spirits, right? So when I got the invitation to come out and finish that program, and that was eight intense weeks of finishing that program, and I was in the labs with mechanical engineers, with software engineers, with firmware engineers, with industrial engineers, and I could see the whole thing come together, I knew that that's where I had to be. At that point, um, when we had finished the iMac, I was shown an org chart and I was asked to pick my position. I was 25 years old at that point in time, so I really didn't have a whole lot to lose. I had never really considered immigrating growing up, but because I knew this was where I was supposed to be at this time, it was easy for me to just take that leap. And, you know, when you're young, there's nothing that you can do that's too bad that you can't turn around and go home. Anyway, Apple um, did extremely well. I stayed there until 2009. I realized then that the cell phone business was a big deal. I could have transferred from the Mac engineering team into the iPhone team, but I wanted to learn new tricks. I knew um, Apple's um, structures, knew Apple's tools, and I didn't know how to get myself to the next level in my career. I didn't know what the next natural progression within that company would be. And I knew that I didn't want to go back to college and spend, you know, four years to get another master's program because I just like to just push myself forward all of the time. And I had kids, so it would have been impractical to work and do that uh, and do a secondary um, college. So I thought, you know, the college of life is uh, a um, a lot more meaningful at times. And that's when I made the decision to go to work for Palm. Now, Palm had WebOS at the time, and I don't know if you remember back around 2009 to 2010, everybody was talking about OS-less systems and the browser being the next big thing, and I was kind of fascinated by that. Now, the work that I had done in Apple had always been um, at a driver layer um, and at a, at a, well, a driver and an API layer, right? Then when I was in Palm, I got to do the entire WebOS stack. So from the kernel all the way up to the application layer. And Palm got bought out by HP within a year. Um, HP decided that they didn't have an interest in supporting WebOS products going further. Um, They didn't know exactly what to do with the team. And, you know, 
life is too short for me to kind of sit around and wait for a company to decide what to do with my life. I like to be in charge of my life. And at that point, I'd already been talking to Intel because I kind of got a crush on Intel when I was working with Apple and doing the transition from PowerPC to Intel chips. So I was very curious and I was thinking this is the perfect opportunity to get lower down deep into the stack and to learn the silicon and learn, you know, top to bottom. It just made logical sense for me to do that with my career. Now I spent the first three years at Intel um, in the mobile communications division and, you know, again, that was just a huge, huge professional growth period of time. And now I'm drinking from the fire hose again because I just, just jumped into the services division. So now I'm working on um, uh, cloud services, connected services, hosting and infrastructure, um, and enabling our IoT group, enabling our DCG group, our, our data center group, and enabling um, our client computing group. So... I'm sort of internally enabling and, you know, for me, with software, I like software reuse, I like that because my quality background points to, you know, ensuring that we have something that's similar and built for, built for security and built for quality across all of our um, data centers. So I'm super excited. I'm learning a lot right now because it's only been, what, six weeks that I'm into this new role, but it's been great. It's been great. I feel alive. I mean, for me, I don't get up in the morning just because I didn't die the night before. I get up because there's something that I have to do and I want to do. And I don't know what's behind the drive, but I'm going to drive it the whole way and see where I end up. Do you think, um, sorry, in speaking about the university of life do you think a lot of people might think they go into positions underqualified and sell themselves short or maybe there's this sort of idea that you have to get a master's under your belt in order to be listened to do, do you think that there's an argument that people might be over educating themselves and acquiring skills that they're actually not going to apply in a work setting yeah, that's a really good question i mean steve jobs uh, who was our ceo in apple was a dropout Right? Bill Gates, I don't think that he completed his degree either. I think every single one of us is different. And it's all down to what it is to you and what's important to you. Now, another wonderful Cork woman um, who is a corporate vice president in Intel, Anne Kelleher, and I'm extremely proud of Anne, and has a master's and maybe a doctorate degree too, I believe, um, and you know, Anne is running our fabs in New Mexico and doing fabulous. That works great for her, and she's corporate vice president, right? Um, for me, I am looking at... Um, I don't feel as though it's that important for me to do a full master's um, program at this point in my career because of the experience, but I want to take up certain specific classes. And I know that a lot of the universities in the United States right now are thinking about what do graduates want to keep themselves on the top of their career? Because if you've left college 20 years ago, what I learned 20 years ago, like Pascal, uh, Fortran, COBOL, that's not relevant to today. Now, I've kind of kept hands-on and I've learned on the job, but there's different skills all the time that need to be learned. So for me and my style, it's much easier for me to take a six-weeks intensive course on something or a weekend's course because more letters behind my name isn't something that I particularly aspire to. And then, of course, there's the danger of getting too bogged down in the detail, especially when you're managing people. Um, is is do you have to learn to keep a, a critical distance, if you will? Absolutely not. I mean, I think that you have to be... Um, a leader has to have his boots on the ground or her boots on the ground or her heels on the ground, let's put it that way, because uh, I like heels more than boots. Um, I think that um, I, my management style is very much I'm part of the team. My management style is... If I have to be very directive in a meeting, I will take the front seat of the meeting. But in most cases, I like to sit in the middle of the room and attract and draw in the ideas from everybody. Um, my staff are, in most cases, deep experts in 
connected and in cloud and in cloud services and in hosting and in infrastructure. So I don't have to be the deep um, expert, but I have to know enough to challenge them and to keep them growing. But um, yeah, to me, hire the best people. That's the right thing to do. And then do right by those people. Ensure that you're helping those people achieve their career goals too. And uh, just a, a final point on career development. I mean, as, as an Irish person working in the Valley, uh, occasionally you hear interviews with uh, other Irish people that have gone abroad and they say, you know what, the accident really did, doesn't hurt your chances whatsoever because it gives you uh, almost uh, an outsider um, perspective or maybe people see you as an outsider and, and are inherently then more objective in dealing with people. Have you found your nationality to be any benefit? Oh, I love being Irish. I mean, and to me, I mean, people usually, when I start talking, initially when I was younger, right, I emigrated when I was 25, and it was, it was bothersome because I would go into meeting rooms and I would notice everybody's just smiling around the table and I'm there thinking, you know, you're not actually really listening to what I'm saying at all. So one of the good things about getting older is that people suddenly start listening to what you're saying. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Brian Krasanich, our CEO, and Brian Krasanich said, there's something about the Irish accent that makes people sound so intelligent. Mm. And, you know, there was me and Anne-Marie Holmes, who is a wonderful woman who's also working in um, Intel and the leak slip um, site, and we had been talking to each other. And we kind of stepped back for a second, and then we're thinking oh my goodness, how wonderful it is that that's now what the Irish culture is known for. There's no longer that the Irish accent insinuates the old stereotypes. Um, So, yeah, I do believe that people see that we're direct. We say what we mean. Um, We speak the same language. I mean, our first language is English. The American's first language is English. And... We're fairly bold and a fearless um, race of people. Okay, thank you, Margaret. Thank you very much. And speaking there to Niall Kitson was Margaret Burgraff speaking about her vision of the Internet of Things. Now, speaking of the Internet of Things, Niall also spoke to Philip Moyna, who is the Vice President of the Internet of Things Group. One of the many projects that Philip has worked on is the Quark System on a Chip, which is one of the key technologies being used to test out the new Internet-connected devices. Philip went into detail on his view on the Internet of Things and why it's not just all about smarter home appliances. We're back again in the media room at the ITLG Silicon Valley Global Tech Summit in Fingal in a sunny D- DCU today. Uh, and I'm joined by Philip Moyna from uh, Intel, whose primary work at the moment is on the Internet of Things. In fact, his job title is VP of the Internet of Things Group at Intel. And uh, Philip is a proud Irishman and has a, an awful lot to say about uh, how the Internet of Things has been developed in Ireland and uh, how it might look in the future. So, I suppose just to get down to first principles, um, quite a while ago you talked about how the internet of screens was was what we knew, uh, and now we are moving towards the internet of things. So what exactly does that transition involve, and how will the average person in the street experience it? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating transition. I'll, I, I, um, um, to take a half step back, and then I'll go to your question. So what's intriguing to somebody like me who's made my career in the computing and internet business is to wake up one day to the realization that this extraordinary multi-trillion dollar thing called the internet, uh, one word is adequate to describe it, suddenly isn't adequately described by one word, that we need to constrain it uh, by stating the fact that it is an internet of screens, that at the end of every internet connection, you need to have the intelligence of a Nile or a Philip or a Mary or a Joe who is deciding what's useful to insert into that internet system or extract from that internet system. So brilliant though it is, transformational though it has been and will continue to be, it still requires all the intelligence of people wrapped around the edge on their phone screen or tablet screen or PC screen or TV screen, but always sitting on a screen. And so as the technology, you know, Moore's Law makes compute performance 
halves the price and doubles the performance every two years. Connectivity used to be, um, you know, I would shout to you and that's as far as I could communicate, right? And, and then through eons we go through through uh, sending smoke signals and finally we get telegraph wires and, and dip, dip, da, da, dip, right? And, and now we're in a space where um, I look at my 19 and 17, 15-year-old kids and they are connected all the time. They don't know or care whether their phone is hanging off a cellular network or a Wi-Fi network. Um, they simply take connectivity as the norm. It's ubiquitous. And the odd time we end up in a location where it doesn't exist, where there is no connectivity, you would swear you just hacked their legs off, right? So we've become used to um, compute performance at a really compelling price point, ubiquitous connectivity. And now, instead of having to have a smart person at the end of every internet link, we can now start creating smart things at the end of every internet link. Um, now, like every overnight sensational, it's like a... Um, I was on a panel recently where uh, a, 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 US, uh, a, a person in the U.S. used the Beatles to illustrate the overnight sensation of Internet of Things because from a U.S. perspective, they arrived and they were enormous. From this side of the pond, um, I happened to know that they spent a lot of time working hard in, the, in small bars in Liverpool and medium-sized bars in Hamburg before they finally became the overnight sensation. And, of course, Internet of Things has been the same. And I would argue that, that the first really interesting example of a, um, of, a smart, of a thing, not a screen, a thing that was smart and connected in a dramatic way was Apollo. To put um, a person on the moon and bring them back safely, right? That was John F. Kennedy's the man with an Irish link, but that was JFK's uh, determination before the close of the 60s that, that safely get a man on the moon and back. And so computing and, and connectivity went through a revolution uh, in order to enable that to happen. And so this thing went to the moon and came back, but it, was, it had compute performance, it had connectivity. For all the time bar the dark side of the moon, it was connected back to Earth. And there was a, a compute capability on Earth that was processing the information that came back. So it was a smart communicating thing that was connected to a cloud or a hub um, that was smart intelligence. So while the term Internet of Things wasn't used then, it, it's been there since the 60s. But you needed to be the richest country on the planet to do it. Now we have the same compute performance in our phones as existed in the entire Apollo mission. I mean, on the Apollo craft and on the ground, right? Now connectivity is ubiquitous, and now you can put that performance. Uh, it went from the richest country on the planet putting it in spacecraft, then it became you know, large corporations like Intel. We dig a hole, we pour $5 billion into the ground. This is my background is running factories or fabs, as we call them, uh, making silicon chips. In order to make a chip that's a square centimeter and a billion transistors on it, um, we we spend $5 billion, and everything within that factory now is, is a thing. And all of those things are smart, and all of those things are connected. And the return on investment is such that while we didn't have you know, the investment capability of the U.S. nation, big companies have found a tipping point, a usefulness for investing in smart, connected things in the 70s and 80s. And then that turned into Boeing um, engines on on airliners that are flying around the planet as we speak, communicating directly to the ground over, say, a cellular network or via satellite to the cloud, because, again, the return on investment was appropriate. Now, um, thank you, Moore's Law, all of that capability is available in a car, and it's increasingly available in a, in a light bulb. So we're at a tipping point now where you don't have to be the richest planet or an enormous company or a medium-sized company, you can now be um, a smart kid in a dorm room and you can get access to this Internet of Things technology. That's the tipping point that's happening right now. It happened on screens a couple of decades ago and enormous companies came from, an enormous impact came from individuals and small teams of people, usually young, usually full of imagination, not understanding how hard things were. They just said, hey, I got a laptop and an internet connection and I can create 
you know, a, a social media enterprise. Why not? And so that's the tipping point we're at right now on the Internet of Things. We're at the equivalent of the Facebook and Google era now. Well, when people say uh, Internet of Things to us on the show, we look for a, a very basic um, way to explain it or a very basic application. We look at you know the washing machine that knows when it's full or when you've, you've run out of detergent or you're looking at uh, the fridge with the specific places for the milk so when the carton is empty, it recognises that the carton is empty. This, this sort of kind of uh, domestic applications, if you will, but I mean, there has to be an awful lot more to it, uh, especially when you look at wearables. Uh, so where, where should we be looking for the Internet of Things on the shelves at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, there's, I've always got two reactions to the fridge, you know, on the washing machine example, which is um, my first reaction is great. There's, you take this abstract concept of Internet of Things, and now there's a tangible version of it. And my second reaction is... Ugh, God, not again, right? Here's another um, important but, but so often repeated example that really isn't very exciting or compelling. Now, the, the, the interesting thing to me, Niall, is that, that you kind of have to cover a spectrum in between because there are piles of examples. Um, when um, This is a sad example to bring up, but there was a, you know, an airline in Asia that you know, a craft went missing. And when that happened... A bunch of colleagues of mine or friends of mine, you know, over a Guinness in the, in the pub that weekend are saying, you know, wow, you know the, the engine on that aircraft, it seems, was communicating with the ground. And the last understanding of where the aircraft was, was the thing called the engine communicating via satellite to the ground. What's that about? So... Um, to my earlier comment, it's because the, the, those big expensive things like aircraft and jet engines became smart, not just things, but smart things and smart connected things at that point. So um, there are some amazing car companies now. And interestingly, um, the car example is, a, I think, an, a good one, because if you take a Tesla that says, let's go from ground up, right? There's none of this engine stuff and petrol stuff. Let's get a battery and make that the base of our car, put four wheels in the corner, and then you build from there. And in, the, in that car, if you've, if, if you've been in one, I actually have a couple of U.S. friends who have them. They're magnificent vehicles. But when you sit in them, it's like a command module, right? These, it's just PC screens, you know. It's touch-sensitive PC screens, and it's connected to the cloud. And, and um, the first time I sat in one, that thing called a car was a super smart thing. Now, so are the cars that you and I drive. They're smart enough to open the door when you press the latch that says open the door, the wireless connection that says open the door. They're smart enough to turn the engine on when you press that button. They're smart enough to not allow you to apply the brakes in a stupid way, but to judge what you really meant to do and apply the brakes or not. Um, so the anti-lock braking system's in place. So a car, a typical car, has three, 400 pieces of silicon minimum minimum, doing smart functions around the car. But each of those smart pieces of silicon do one function only. Open the door, close the door. Brake, don't brake. Wipers, not wipers. Turn on the radio, turn off the radio. They have very specific discrete functions because that's how we got to here. And what Tesla has shown, and you see it in the other car manufacturers now, is that all those little bits of silicon scattered around the car doing single things are being drawn back into very uh, PC enterprise infrastructure type of approach, a central big compute engine with some stuff sitting around the edge that's checking whether you're about to bump into a car next to it or um, you know, doing the self-parking. But it has a really smart brain, and that brain is connected to the cloud. And so when I sat in my Tesla for the first time in my friend's car, and as we, as we got in, it just announced that it had downloaded a new um, sports setting for the... Uh, for the uh, car um, that impacted both the ride and the traction in sporting arrangement because they're learning from all the vehicles that are on the road. Tesla are pulling all this data back. They're crunching it. They're seeing how people really use it when things are you know, going ex as they expected, better than expected, not as well as they expected. They learn from that and they send it out in the same way that you and I tell our computer that it's going to be a TV screen or a calculator or a spreadsheet or a web browser in software, you didn't throw the hardware away for that purpose. So, so cars have hit that point now. And Nest is the 
best and a brilliant example of it on the thermostat. Who'd have thought people would spend a couple of hundred euro on a thermostat and that you'd care that it looks that good? But it's, um, it's a brilliant device and it's a smart thing that sits in our, in our house that can connect to that. The, back to the dull story of the fridge, right? It's not yet, but in due course when we fix the languages that all of the things speak so that you can bring the knowledge together, then instead of the, hey, my, my washing machine is, you know, needs detergent, that's a good thing to know. It'd be far better if you knew it as you were driving home and before you got to the, drove past the shop that had the detergent would be useful to know. Maybe more usefully, um, the only time a washing machine has ever broken down in our house is at the time that it was the worst possible time for it to break down. I don't know how that works, but that's, you know, it's a disaster. We've gotten a washing machine. Well, um, if you listen to the torque on the motor of a washing machine, if you monitor the vibration in a washing machine, then when it's running normally, torque is within a normal torque window, vibration is within a normal vibration window, and if something's going wrong, both of those things change. So if the, thing, if the machine is smart enough to say, I'm not... You know, I've just noticed something's unusual, so I'm going to flag this to the maintenance person so that, that next time they're driving past my house, they step in here and do some preventive maintenance on the thing. Or it's now gone into red territory. It's rattling really badly. You better get somebody around here now. That's a genuine value-add thing for me, um, if I had that across all my, my devices. So that, that's the long answer. short answer, we've moved from Apollo through big factories, through aircraft through um, cars it's now hitting our um, um, hitting our homes and you raised a really important part of that a subset to, to my mind of internet of things is the wearable subcomponent um, I have a daughter who's who's uh, a bit sick at the moment and so she has a watch on a uh, company that we bought a company Intel bought called basis and it monitors 7 by 24 her heart rate um, it monitors her temperature, um, sweat levels. It knows when she falls asleep, when she wakes up. It knows REM sleep, light sleep, deep sleep. Um, it gives insight that, you know, when you go to the doctor and they say, uh, let me check your pulse there. Um, yeah, it might be a little bit high. It's okay. Well, actually, can I just show you the data? Right? Here's actually the average for the last month. Here was the high point. Here's the low point. There's when it, when it was happening. The level of insight that we should be able to gather from a $200 piece of equipment that historically was unimaginable. I mean, we're going to see such transformations in health space in, as well as in agriculture, as well as in transport, as well as in... and so on. Uh, you just you raised a really interesting area when you were sort of talking about cars. And one of the... So our most divisive technologies in cars is where, whether to drive a manual or an automatic car. And people generally pre prefer to drive a manual car because they prefer the level of control that they're given. Um, an awful lot of the things that you're describing with the Internet of Things are their time savers, their convenience. Um, you know, these are things that do actually make your life easier. But at the same time, there is that level of control that people like to have. I mean, fair enough, your appliance may tell the maintenance person when they're when they need fixing, but maybe you don't have the money to get it fixed at the moment. You know, the um, the ability to control what sort of information is sent from the device to the maintenance man, to you know the traffic light, to whatever. Um, surely that's a barrier that people have mentally to taking on more of this kind of technology. Yeah, no question. I, I think that the, from an Intel perspective, a very short illustration of of um, the, the recognition of the problem statement you just described from Intel's perspective was to spend $8 billion on a company called McAfee. So purchase a security company. The, I, I'm not, I don't think probably now there's ever been a technology from you know, when somebody found a sharp stone and tied a bit of wood to it. So they had an axe that they could now usefully wield to build a better house. There were also negative ways of using it, right? Um, there's never been a te the technology as uh, as uh, as a technology is not inherently a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a capability. And then the question is, well, how do we choose to deploy that capability, right? And we, um, I, I I think it's important we we t we test left edge and test right edge, so that we you know we run right to the to the, go to the right edge and say what are all the extraordinarily positive things we could do with this. I can monitor my kids, 
health, 7 by 24. I can determine when my, when my grandmother falls in her house with a fall detector. I can get that washing machine fixed. I can have the car self-drive. But you have to test the left-hand edge, which is sometimes, um, uh, you know, I want control of that car. So I need the ability, I want the ability to, to take control of it or not have that maintenance person turn up. Or I don't want all of my medical data being ported to the cloud. I don't want um, somewhere out there that the presence, my presence or the number of people present in my house and the location they are in my house is communicated. I don't necessarily want the speed at which I drive my car to be made available all the time. That's a, a choice I need to be able to make. And so from, for, and this isn't a statement about Intel, this is the broad ecosystem of technology companies are increasingly aware of the fact that you need to give that, build in the capability so that people can choose. So if your insurance company says, hey, Niall, here's the deal. If you make the speed at which your car moves at all times available to us, we'll give you a reduction in the price. And if you choose not to, you pay a higher premium. Well, that's fine. You will make your choice on the basis of that. But it should be your choice. It shouldn't be something that simply happens. So the, it needs to be secure. And it needs the privacy, and I think the only really smart way of making privacy available is anything that's collected on me, it should be visible to me. If you're going to collect it on me now, you develop a technology that's helpful to me, thank you for that. But I want to know what you're collecting, and I want at any given point to be able to see what that is and rescind that capability. I, I, I worry a little, and I see it through my kids' lens, you know, when... when when I go through the apps on my phone, when I'm installing an app on my phone, I'm one of those kind of pain-in-the-ass folks who actually checks what privilege I'm given to the app I'm installing. There are an extraordinary number of applications out there that, whose purpose is to you know, deliver music to my phone, which is a useful value-add thing for me. Thank you for that. Um, and when I'm saying yes to it, I'm telling it where I am. I'm telling it my phone number. I'm telling it my IP address. I'm telling, really? What was it about delivering music to my phone that required access to that stuff? So I think there's a bit of it is enable you to, the technology companies need to deliver the capability that allows you to feel comfortable with it. But I actually think the bigger problem is that the Phillips and Niles out there aren't actually checking. And we should. And when we should and when we do, we should buy the technology provided by companies who enable that, not the ones who don't. Uh, so just getting away from sort of the, the macro level of the Internet of Things, uh, you have to get down to the backbone now. What, what is the technology that's going to make it happen? And uh, from Intel's perspective, a, a hefty chunk of that was actually developed uh, in Ireland with the uh, Quark platform. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about it and how it's being applied at the moment? Yeah, it's a from, from um, an Intel family of products perspective, we have cloud-oriented stuff. It's called Xeon. We have... PC laptop oriented stuff that's called Core. We have tablet phone oriented stuff called Atom, and then we have an Internet of Things line. So it's the fourth of the product lines, and and yeah, Quark is what it's called. And um, a, a, a little detour on I kind of like the where the name came from. So um, let, let me share briefly that piece with you now. Um, we were looking for names that describe technology that was embedded into things, um, and so we were looking at you know proton or neutron or electron, and Quark was. Uh, was a, a net one of those obvious terms to use as a form of energy or matter. Um, the bias I had towards Quark was that the word was originated by James Joyce in Finnegan's Wake. So he made the word up in Finnegan's Wake, and the, um, the guys who, the folks who discovered or conjectured the existence of this form of energy and matter happened to be reading Finnegan's Wake at the time and thought that the word was a pretty cool way of describing that that matter so so um a little bit of a greedy irish bias we kind of like the fact that a it's it's it describes something bedded into things physical world and b james joyce came up with it um to the broader question though um yeah it's a you know this is not just an ireland centric statement but silicon valley has touched your life, my life, everyone on this podcast has been touched in a non-subtle way by Silicon Valley. Um, a lot of the technologies that we depend on have come out of there. 
And so have a lot of the business models. Right? Everyone talks about the technology that comes out of there, but the way the technology gets deployed, whether that's... Um, you know, it's kind of interesting that, like an Airbnb, um, I don't know, they're maybe half the size of the Marriott group at this stage, um, and they own no hotel rooms, right? Or an Uber car uh, rental, you know, I can get access to cars, it's competition for taxis, they own no cars. You know, it's the disruption on business models, um, as well as the disruption on the technology is kind of extraordinary. And there's been this beacon of brightness called Silicon Valley that's had this mashup of young and old and black and white and male and female and just this extraordinary explosion of um, openness to new ideas. So it's a mashup of multiple ideas. It's a, and it has great research universities like Stanford's and Berkeley's and it has access to angel investment capital and people move around between small, medium and large companies and so it's a it's a fascinating place and and I've lived there for a long time and, and many people have gone there to try and copy that around other places around the planet. And I think it's a good thing to do that and it's a real question for any geography and it's one for Ireland right now is well why not us? Right? What stops us doing it? And when I look at the 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 kind of Intel centric revolutions, you know, the microprocessor, the computer, um, frankly you or I if we wanted to play a pivotal part in microprocessors and computers, we needed to be in Silicon Valley because that's where physically the technology was being developed and to access it, it's access started there. And for the internet, a little bit the same, a little bit more diverse, but, but diverse, but um, you know, there are many parts of Ireland still don't have good broadband connection, so it's kind of hard to compete in that, in that space. But that differentiation has has changed. We've had a pretty momentous weekend in Ireland just past. Um, I think we're maybe the 21st country that has um, that has made it legal to have gay marriage. This might seem like a bit of a detour, but but we're the first country on the planet that actually voted it in by by the populace. You know, two thirds of the population chose to put in enact in law something that's for a small percentage of the population. I think the the, the importance of that is very hard to understate. It's a reflection of a country that's grown up. You know, we're no longer this. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being white or Catholic, um, but but there's something not okay about being exclusively white and Catholic. And so we've come a long way as a country in the in the last while. And I think you need that diversity of perspectives, and it's been a pretty revolutionary change. So I I remember being shocked and 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 loving and being enlightened by turning up in San Francisco and seeing the size and openness of the gay community, for example. It's, it's, it's a place that's just open to ideas, and that's a specific manifestation of it. So for Ireland to play its part, any part of the planet, but for Ireland to play its part on this tipping point on, on technologies, we need to have that respect for diverse perspectives. We need to be open to it. We need to be comfortable with making experiments and failing fast in order to win. Um, the Bay Area is extraordinary at those things. We have not been good enough, and it wouldn't have mattered for the PC revolution or the Internet revolution because we didn't have the infrastructure. Well, we've got it now. We've got Arduino boards or Galileo boards. We have access to the silicon. We've got the same software development environments. We have access to the world's information through our uh, search engines and browsers. We have no disadvantage bar our mindset, and we need to decide that we want to be part of that by respecting a diversity of opinions, by experimenting fast, failing fast, and learning big. And so um, now back to the Intel part of this, we just have woken up to that internally. We've finally, within Intel in Ireland, we've been through a micro version of what's going on in the country at large. We probably had better access to a you know, worldwide visibility because most of us have been outside the country and back in. But I think what's happened within and Intel Ireland, where we started as a manufacturing machine that did what it was told, as we became a manufacturing powerhouse for Intel, and we've become a, I, I would like to think, I, in fact, I know that, that head office looks to us as much more than a, um, you know, make things as you're told. We are a source of ideas and innovation, and what's happening in our microcosm in Intel Ireland in being a real and positive contributor to Internet of Things um, even more importantly, I think, is being reflected outside of Intel and the country broadly. 
Uh, one of the, just to sort of finish off on, on more things that are happening in Ireland, um, just this past weekend we had the PCH Hackathon, which uh, Intel was involved in. Um, going to sort of events like this and seeing people just taking an idea from concept to fruition in 54 hours um, and coming up with just small solutions to problems using Internet of Technology sort of principles or, or that mindset, uh, is it really that simple? I mean, to take that idea and go, actually, you know, this isn't a toy, this is a viable project at the end of it. Is this the stage that the technology is at where, you know, almost the average person can take an idea and make something out of it? Um, yes. The answer is almost that short. Um, the, the longer version is, and, and what you saw, what you experienced in that hackathon, I mean, I just, they're, they're, they're a buzz now, right? They're just an incredibly uplifting environment. Um, so hackathons are not new. Right? Software hackathons have been happening for a couple of decades. Um, the first place I saw them, and I suspect where they originated, but the first place I saw them was in the Bay Area again. Um, hardware hackathons are a much newer thing. They've been around a couple of years. We've run... I would say five, six hackathons in the past year. The first three or four were um, open the doors, people come in, uh, maximum capacity for that is 120 in, in, in our institute, 120 people there, a bit of training on how to use the development environment and the Galileo boards or whatever, the Edisons, the Arduinos, how do I use the stuff? And then... Um, and then it's pitch your ideas, right? And you, you've seen the idea pitching. Um, for, the, for I suspect most people in your audience um, will be familiar with them, but let me use one example. It was the very first idea pitched in the very first hackathon, hardware hackathon we did in Ireland. So, so I remember it particularly well. Um, the individual, I'd say, was a mid-20s male, um, stood up and he had 60 seconds um, we always say 60 seconds, not a minute, to reinforce the fact that you get your message across quick because we're shoving you off the stage. So he had 60 seconds to pitch his story. And his story went something like, I got hit by a car this morning. Actually, I hit a car this morning. Actually, I rode my bike into a car this morning. And I rode my bike into a car this morning because I didn't know whether to go straight ahead or right at the next junction. And so I was looking at my phone. And so my idea is called the smart helmet, and I want to put actuators in the helmet that's connected to the maps on my phone that taps me on the right side of the head if I need to turn right, taps me on the front for straight ahead, taps me on the left for going forward. Um, my name is, I've forgotten, Patrick. Um, this is Smart Helmet. Thank you very much. And he got off the stage. And then the next and the next, and you know, 40 ideas get presented. It's fantastic, right? And exactly as you said, that's a Friday afternoon. And by Sunday evening, you have a helmet with a board hanging off the back of it and actuators are moving and it's listening, communicating with your phone. And, you know, you've seen them. I've never seen a product in there that you'd, you know, put in, the, put in a store and sell. But as an illustration, not just of uh, an idea, but a physical manifestation of that idea implemented in hardware and software and a business model wrapped around it, here are the number of helmets, here are the number of people that get run over by cars while they're riding their bikes. So here's the what we think is the market value and, and, and. I mean, it's a magnificent training ground is the first thing. But we've been tweaking them more recently. So we ran a um, beef hackathon. Um, why beef? Because, you know, from an Ireland perspective, it's something where, you know, green beef is a big deal. It's something we're particularly good at. U.S. and Japanese markets are expanding fast. ABP, um, the biggest um, beef processing company in Europe, um, uh, they came to that environment and said, look, here are the general problems and opportunities we have. So they did a bit of education for folks. We still had 120 people there plus the support org, but it was here's the sort of problems we're dealing with. And then people went to work on real problems, and it was even more impressive than the wide open hackathon because you ended that week with um, solutions for problems that, that, the, that are real and tangible in the big world. So I think we need, a, we need both of those pieces. But your core point, and back to the real answer is yes, right, is that 
that that the price point, the development environment, um, the accessibility of the hardware and software required in order to take an idea and turn it into a prototype in less than three days exists now. And it won't be your production-ready product, but how cool is it that in a matter of a weekend you've produced a physical, smart, and connected thing that allows you to go to market. Just as a couple of decades ago you could do that in a software program with a laptop and an internet connection, now you can do it with development boards, a development environment for Internet of Things. Great. Thanks very much, Philip. Thank you very much, Doug. And that's it for our Tech Radio Show Double Bank Holiday Special this week, where Niall was speaking first to Margaret Burgraff from Intel and just there to Philip Moyna from the Internet of Things Group, both of whom were at the Irish Technology Leaders Group Silicon Valley Global Tech Summit at the Helix in DCU. For more on the conference and all of the Irish tech stories as they break, uh, do check in with techcentral.ie as well as our weekly Tech Radio Show online and every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Have a wonderful weekend and until next week for myself, Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson at Tech Central. Thanks for listening. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com Tech Central.